Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Okay, so when I was growing up, I was obsessed with the Sherlock Holmes stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Holmes was my first literary boyfriend, and I wanted to become a detective. I mean, as an eight-year-old, I thought it would be really fun to traipse around the country with my bestie and solve crimes. And honestly, as an adult, I still think that'd be cool. But then I became a journalist, which is kind of like a detective. Conan Doyle was considered pop culture in his day, and his beloved sleuth has enjoyed a kind of resurgence in recent years with several TV shows and movies. The most loyal of these depictions, in my estimation, indubitably, The Great Mouse Detective. With that in mind, I want to ask what pieces of pop culture helped make you who you are today? What song, movie, or TV show marked a big moment in your life and stuck with you? These are questions Aisha Harris considers often. She's the co-host and critic for NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Her new book, called Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me, explores her own upbringing in Connecticut and the ways early influences shaped her role today as critic. Aisha Harris joins me now. Thank you so much, Aisha, for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. And for our listeners, I want to ask, how did pop culture impact you? Was there a movie that changed your life or maybe a song that influenced how you think? Let us know. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Aisha, take us back to the beginning. How did you develop this series of essays? Were these all gems you've been sitting on as you're writing and hosting, or did you come up with some with new concepts as you're writing them? Yeah, I mean, I think considering my background, I think all of these essays were sort of percolating in the back of my mind in some form or another before I even had the idea to write the book. Um, But it was definitely kind of through figuring out how I wanted the book to be shaped and formed. Uh, And when I decided I wanted to do a series of essays, I really sort of focused on my perspective as someone who has grown up with pop culture and has really found that it's had a profound impact on me in ways that I both had been aware of and then other ways where I kind of discovered them over time. And I wanted to sort of uh, chronicle those different various points of my life where I've had very um, sort of life-changing moments or epiphanies and also reflect how everyone can have those same experiences and similar experiences as well. Right. And I think with Americans being so focused on pop culture, I certainly can imagine, and myself included, that pop culture has had such a huge influence on my own life. And I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life unpacking that, really. And so this is a reckoning with pop culture and its influence. And your book lays out many cultural tropes shaping all of us. And you also point out how we have the ability to shape them right back. And so is this also part of what you mean by reckoning? Can you help us understand that better? 
Yeah, I, one of the essays uh, is about sort of this idea of over personalization within popular culture. And I wanted to sort of unpack how we've gotten to a point now where it's not that people haven't always um, sought um, ideas around activism and, and politicism within uh, arts and pop culture. But I do think we've kind of shifted to a point now where a lot of us who are consuming these things, whether it's our favorite musical artists or franchises or or, move, or like creators and, and, and filmmakers, um, we want them to have, to some extent, some sort of uh, alignment with our own morals and values in a way that didn't always exist, or at least not in the same way you know, years ago. And so when I think of, you know, an artist, someone like Lizzo, who recently um, changed the lyrics of one of her songs because it used a word that some listeners found offensive, uh, in that way, in that way, you know, she was responding to her fans who were saying, like, this isn't a great word to use. It's hurtful. And she was very quick and said, oh, I'm really sorry. I And she was able to change the lyrics there. And so I think the shaping right back in many ways is that there's a sort of back and forth and conversation that is happening more and more between artists and creators and fans, um, where fans are able to sort of impart their own ideas about what they feel is right or or progressive um, onto the artists that they love. And the Spice Girls show up in the context of a larger exploration about the Black friend motif throughout history, you know, sort of from Huck Finn onwards. Can you speak to Wannabe, the title of a Spice Girls hit, of course, as your book title choice? Yeah. So, you know, so much of this book is about me sort of exploring how I tried to see myself within pop culture and the idea of wanting to be something else or wanting to look like someone else. Um, you know, the first chapter is about the, the like my name. I have another chapter about how I've seen um, looked at this idea of masculinity and me wanting to be closer to this idea uh, of masculinity uh, and and sort of reject my being a girl and and girlhood and this idea about power. And um, so I, I want to be a sort of it's twofold. It's yes, it is the Spice Girls. And I reference them directly, um, especially Scary Spice as being like the black friend and me being often the Black friend uh, amongst my friends when I was growing up. Um, and a lot of my friends were white or, or not Black. Um, but it's also about what we want to be and what we want our art and our culture to be. Um, and so it has, a, it has a little bit of a double meaning there um, in, in terms of just these ideas around um, desire and uh, self-image. And I, I feel like that really would resonate with a lot of people because what you're speaking of, I know it's a very specific example, but I'm also wondering, is that a universal experience? Now, are you are you hearing from your readers or just maybe friends and colleagues that you've had these conversations with? You know, how has their responses been in terms of motifs like this? Because this is not a new theme, right? But I feel like we're talking about this more out in the open. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that it's it's so interesting to to hear from people who are now reading it or, or 
listening to it. And it's uh, I've, I've had people say, you know, like, even though their name wasn't the same as mine, they've had similar experiences of, of people uh, trying to relate to their name via pop culture references. Um, <laughs> there's one person who said that their name was Adrian, but it's spelled Adrian. And they're like, I went my whole life with people just yelling at me, yo, Adrian. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> those those types of like uh, experiences can be so frustrating and universal in many ways, regardless of our our background. Um, it's also just been interesting to hear from people who have had similar experiences of 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 how they saw themselves as young girls and and wanting to be uh, also wanting to sort of uh, display these um, ideas and and ideas that are very you know reductive but when you're a kid you don't know better um about you know sexuality and and um gender identity and so yeah it's been really really fun to see and hear from people who uh even if they don't specifically relate to every single thing they understand the sentiments and can relate um in in uh you know broader ways as well yeah, and I, I think the relatability certainly uh, rang for me because as I was reading it, the first chapter, like you mentioned, it's about your name. I was having my own sort of reflection of, oh, like when people hear my name, they expect me to look a certain way. And when I don't reflect what they thought I should look like, they're very surprised. And so mm. that really, um, it, that part did resonate with me. And, and it, I just started to think of all the examples, which is that is a whole different show in of itself. So, but I think you know you having you, you sort of expressing your own personal experiences. I feel like it's a major thread, and I think it's it's a very makes it very compelling to read, at least for me. And I know the New York Times observed that the essays are also part of a cultural analysis and also part memoir. So, what was it like to be working through not just pop culture nostalgia, which is so powerful in of itself, but also with your own upbringing and experience in Connecticut within that context? Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't, there was no way for me to write this from a personal standpoint without really reflecting on my earliest years and, and you know, living in uh, a predominantly, or not, yeah, living and, and existing within a predominantly white uh, community as I was growing up. It really did have a profound impact on me. And I think that it's uh it was important to me to sort of capture those moments and i don't look back on them um as bad times but i did realize how in some ways they did have negative long-lasting impact on me that i had to sort of go back and unpack as i was writing this this book um and there were sort of realizations that you know there were things that i was not ready to accept about what it means to be black and what it means to be a young girl at those times um that pop culture really helped me figure out um and so you know the black best the black friend trope for me writing about that was a way to explore how I played my own part in sort of living out this idea of the Black friend, which in popular culture is often just sort of like a sidekick who uh, is there to support the white protagonist. And I wanted to explore how I made myself often feel that way in my real life scenarios of being a Black friend amongst mostly white people. And with what you just mentioned and how, you know, as an adult, it's an the unpacking process. I feel like it's an ongoing process. So, do you do you feel like 
Is it a good thing or a bad thing that you're having this experience now? And I know you mentioned that, you know, your childhood experiences, you're not saying that it's bad. But now you're like, oh, maybe those things were, they were problems. And as an adult, as you're trying to work through it, you know, what goes through your mind when that happens? Are you surprised or do you feel relieved that you're having this moment of sort of, oh, that makes sense now? Oh, yeah, it's definitely a relief. And at some point, I also kind of realized, and I think this is also a sort of common thread throughout the book, is that this is an ongoing process, even though the book is done, it's in in a sense, it's done and it's out there in the world. Um, it's something I'm going to continue to wrestle with. And I think it's important for me to really uh, be able to accept the fact that this is uh, an ongoing process. And, you know, who a few years from now, I might have written this book completely differently than the way it has come out now. But I think that's part of what I love about being alive and and being a critic and and being able to like really continue that journey of um figuring out how things have affected me and you know one of the quotes i have in there is from Roger Ebert where he's talking about how you know we come to movies uh, at different points in our lives and it, it's always going to be a different experience because we're at a different points in our lives like movies stay the same but people change and I think that um, what I hope people get out of this book, one of the things I hope people get out of this book is that they should not be afraid of, of changing their minds or, 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 or being able to sort of um, evolve in their understanding of how pop culture um, shaped them and is still shaping them. I really love what you just said, and I really vibe with the Ebert quote because I remember reading it for the first time, and I kind of linked it to my experience with rereading books. I certainly have those experiences with movies too, but I'm a huge reader, mm-hmm. and I do find myself that oh, when I reread something, I mean, just like Sherlock Holmes, for example, me reading it as an eight-year-old is very different when I'm 28 versus when I'm in my 30s. So I I love that sentiment a lot, and. We, you also dig into the origins of nostalgia and how that exploded into something that could be unhealthy nowadays, like the Disney remakes and Sex and the City and even McDonald's, Happy Meals for Adults, as examples. You know, those are all very pivotal elements of, of upbringing during the 90s and the early 2000s. Do you think this nostalgia kick, as you called it, is accelerating? It's certainly not a new concept. Yeah, I mean, nostalgia goes, you know, hundreds of years back and the idea of nostalgia, but obviously the sort of modern day version is a little bit more recent. Um, I definitely think that we've seen an uptick in, and everyone notices it, the fact that most of the movies now in the last few years in the top 10 of the box office at the theaters have been franchises based on original intellectual property, um, reboots, sequels. It it, it is, uh, this is how studios have been able to get butts and seats in theaters. And then TV has been the same way. Um, and, and it does, it, it's one of my bigger <laughs> concerns about the state of art and, and pop culture is how much the studios and, and companies are relying upon nostalgia and the fact that it's just nostalgia is a natural thing. I, I don't think it's something that any of us can avoid. I certainly feel nostalgic about certain things, but I also believe in endings and I believe that we shouldn't be afraid of things ending and things ending um, you know, before they are just completely, <laughs> completely uh, 
useless or or bad or or descended into the worst versions of themselves. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to explore. It was like, why are we so afraid of endings? And 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 why do we uh, keep going back to the same well um, every year and in, in every season? Well, this is the perfect segue to an expert that you are going to be reading for us. Uh, the chapter is called This Is It ne- Never Ends. Yes, uh, this is the IP. The that IP. Uh, I, you know for, what? I was wondering about yeah. that, and I figured you will let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, IP stands for intellectual property. <laughs> gotcha. Um, but yes, here, yeah, so. Yeah, um, go ahead. It's summer. I'm 31. I'm in a multiplex in Times Square surrounded by movie journalists. Is this real life? Is this fantasy? I don't know, but it is almost certainly Circle of Life dubbed over an episode of Planet Earth. The golden sun swirls upward. The elephants, rhinos, and giraffes make their way to Pride Rock exactly as they always have. They do exactly what I expect them to do, appear at the exact moments as I expect. Except they're no longer lushly animated, but photorealistically designed to such an extreme that I'm having flashbacks to the three-day Kenyan safari I went on five years earlier. It's so weird. I've seen this millions of times before, but not quite like this. It's a mishmash of feelings and moments I've accumulated over 25 years, mined and regurgitated back to me by a corporate entity, Disney, with which I've had a lifelong love-hate relationship. It feels surreal, as though it'll never leave me, but will only keep morphing into something altered. That sensation of amazement and wonder I first felt in that theater in 1994, and my recollection of what it was like to be a kid at that time still remains, and that's what I cling to as I watch this warped imitation of the original. Is this what nostalgia is supposed to feel like? This was, of course, about The Lion King. You're listening to Aisha Harris. She co-hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. After a quick break, we'll continue discussing her new book called Wannabe, Reckonings with a Pop Culture That Shapes Me. How has pop culture shaped who you are? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us is Aisha Harris. She's the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, and she's out with a new book called Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And for our listeners, what elements of pop culture have had an impact on you? You can give us a call and let us know at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Aisha, we were just talking about nostalgia and sort of your personal stories when it comes to talking about pop culture in both your personal life and your professional life. And you also kind of talk about a conflation of taste and identity, especially on social media culture, where fandoms come together and team and they may struggle from over-affiliation. Can you help us understand that better? Yeah, I mean, look, fandom and rabid fandom has existed for very long, a uh, very long time before you or I were even born. Uh, but I think that social media has really exacerbated the the uh, that personality trait in ways that are both good and bad. I think there is uh, something really comforting and nice about the fact that now people can. Uh, nerds are not so much uh, a thing anymore at least nerds are nerddom is something to be celebrated so people can get really into something that they love um and do a lot of that online and connect with people who they might not normally interact with and find community in ways that are very healthy um i think of you know tumblr and how so many people have been able to really just geek out over various things uh but then you have people who are a little bit more on the scary side of things. And the fact that Stan is now something that a lot of people aspire to, standum is something that people aspire to. And for those who may have forgotten or may not be familiar with the the word Stan, the phrase Stan, it means uh, a very overzealous fan of uh, a person or a thing. And it's kind of traced back to the Eminem song Stan, which is about a violent fan uh, of, of Eminem, who commits murder, um, and in in the name, in many ways, of fandom. And so the fact that it's gone from having this very negative connotation to now being something that people like are very proud to be, and the way that plays out in terms of interacting with other fans online, and sometimes it gets really personal, attacking people, doxing them, uh, for saying negative things about their their favorite artists. Um, it's really kind of scary to think about. And I wanted to sort of tease out in the book why this is the case and, and how maybe we can learn to be a little bit uh, less uh, overt and a little bit nicer to people <laughs> about the things that they like and the things that they don't like. Well, it, I think it really reflects to what we were talking about earlier, too, where the idea of fandom, maybe the, maybe the name is more contemporary, but certainly not not a new thing because I mentioned I love Sherlock Holmes. I'm obsessed with Sherlock Holmes. And I love that you mentioned Tumblr because during the BBC sort of peak Sherlock series fandomism, I was on Tumblr and I saw both the great connections a fan and I call it nerd chic by the way us uh, nerd chic 
<laughs> you know, you find your fellow fans, and it's a, it's such a fun time, right? And but then you also see the other side of things, which, as you mentioned, it could get really ugly. And I and I saw that, and it, I think it just surprised me as a younger fan, you know, realizing that wow, like this is very pervasive, and you know, not very different from the Victorian times, really, when when Sherlock Holmes was very popular. But it just really shows how universal we are, and I think that's a whole thesis that we can definitely come back to another day. But it just reflects to what you're saying, and also. You, you mentioned the book that you want more than to operate strictly from a scarcity mindset when it comes to reviewing black art. Can you talk more about the idea of a scarcity mindset? And is that something that's uniquely American or, or is that something that is more universal? Uh, you know, I, I think it's something that is universal in many ways for anyone who feels as though they are not accurately or um, typically represented within pop culture. Um, and the scarcity mindset is really this idea that um, it, and, and it comes from a real place that there you're not uh, seen within popular culture um, enough or in ways that are, you know, um, feel representat- representational to you. And so when that is the case, anything that comes along that does feature you prominently. So I think of, you know, something like Black Panther, which was such a moment for for representation of Black people in a sci-fi fantasy world um, and in such a big scale. You can understand why people are so excited and excited for anything that comes along that feels new and different and, and exciting. But it's not always uh, it's not always a good thing. And I think that especially now we have so many uh, I, I write about it from the perception of, of, of black art. And I, I think we have now so many filmmakers and creators who are doing really interesting things and on a big scale, whether it is Black Panther, Get Out, uh, Jordan Peele, Barry Jenkins, um, Ava DuVernay. We have so many people doing really amazing things. So I feel as though we have more options now and don't have to necessarily operate from a scarcity mindset anymore, which means that if for the things that don't feel uh, that the movies or TV shows or music that comes out, I don't feel like I have to treat it like it's the only thing we're going to get for the next five years. And if I don't like it or if I don't think it's necessarily rising to the occasion in terms of it as a piece of art, I feel as though we should be able to criticize it and critique it in that way, because to treat it as anything less is actually to do a disservice to that art. Um, I don't think that Black art should be treated with kids' gloves. I think that it should be wrestled with rigorously, and that's how you respect Black art. Um, so that's it's been interesting to see that play out, especially um, I recently reviewed The New Little Mermaid negatively at NPR. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of people who were upset with me because they they felt as though I was, um, because this was a Black princess, uh, we should be happy about this um, and ignore the fact that maybe the movie itself is not the greatest. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting to see how it's, it's still continuing and playing out even after the book for me has been written and, and finished. 
We have to take a quick break, but we're going to come back to where we left off. Uh, you're listening to Aisha Harris. She co-hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. After a quick break, we'll continue dissecting her new book titled Wannabe, Reckonings with a Pop Culture That Shapes Me. How has pop culture shaped who you are? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. I'm here with Aisha Harris, who's the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. And we've been talking about her new book called Wannabe, Reckonings with a Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And we were just talking about her review of the latest Disney's remake of The Little Mermaid and the idea that black art isn't fragile. Aisha, you repeat that idea in the book. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I, I kind of take it a little bit further back, and I look at the the sixties and the seventies, um, and when it was a time of both uh, emerging black filmmaking and artists, uh, including people like Gordon Parks, who uh, directed Shaft, um, and movies like Superfly from the black exploitation era. And also just the idea of someone like Sidney Poitier, who, while he was a huge box office star, um, he was criticized by some Black critics and, and Black observers for taking the kind of roles that were, they might have been dignified, but they also felt as though they kind of neutered him as a character. And, and he was playing these sort of um, upstanding characters who didn't have any real um, personality and oomph. And I I recognize that that was, you know, it was that was a time when people were sort of clinging for anything, any kind of representation they could have because there were so few examples. Um, but now that we have more like in the wake of Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte in that entire era, we have so many more black filmmakers and creators working in this medium and being able to do so on a very large scale. And I think that um, we because of that, we have more space to be able to uh, recognize that there is going to be some great art that emerges from that. And then there's going to be some not so great art that emerges from that. And I think like Black critics are in a really interesting space right now um, because we want to be able to do that and say those things. But sometimes we can be accused by other readers of our work, including Black people, of um, not uh, not supporting that art and not being uh kind to that art. And I think it's 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 a tough balance to strike between um your, you know, your identity as a black person and your identity as a critic. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned the the identity portion of being a critic or even just being, you know, anyone in general, but the idea you, we were just talking about you know, these uh, the art being scarce and you also wrote about how limiting also that it can be to constantly evaluate movies shows or music as if i've got a sheet of paper on a clipboard holding representation boxes that need to be checked off in column a which represents positive or column b which represents negative this is a big part of that, right? And you mentioned balance too. You know, how do you balance that? Yeah, I, it's it's still an ongoing process, I think. And I've when I first started in my career, I definitely tended to lean towards 
is this positive? Is this negative? Um, you know, I, I one of the first movies that I wrote about uh, uh, professionally was about the movie Precious from 2009. And, and that movie is a very dark, disturbing movie about a young girl who comes from a very troubled home. Um, and, and it's just really depressing. And I remember thinking, oh, this movie is, it's just bad for black people. It's, it's not making any of us look good. And, you know, I haven't actually gone back and rewatched it recently, but I do think that, um, for me, at least as a critic, I don't want to just talk about necessarily why something might be quote unquote bad representation, but I also want to talk about like the actual aesthetics of the film, how those aesthetics are working and operating. Um, do they work for me? Do I still find it entertaining even if I do have problems with it? And I think that trying to find that balance um, is, is really crucial to being a good critic um, because to do otherwise is to be reductive. And I, I think that there's no such thing as something that is just all all bad or all good. I think that there's always going to be uh, a a mixture and in, in, in a, uh, a, a, collab a a combination of all those things that you just kind of have to suss out for yourself. Right. And and I think what you just said, first of all, it's very complicated, right? And and I, I really like that you you talked about how like there's really no, you know, bad representation or good representation. It's not that simple. Um, why do you think we get hung up on that? Do you think it's because this is the idea that representation is not enough, so we need more positive representation of a certain community because of the way the media has portrayed them. But at the same time, we should also be in a space where, well, people are smart enough to be able to sort of suss it out. But as you say, it is a balance, and we are in a very interesting space right now. Yeah, I, 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 I do think that there are a lot of people who still feel that what we have now is not enough. And I'm not saying that it necessarily is enough, but I, I try to encourage people to, um, especially when talking about um, something like the Little Mer the new Little Mermaid, um, to really think about, you know, are we really in a, a place now where Black girls and Black kids don't have representation? Because they do. Uh, you know, I think of a different franchise, which actually I think is really great, which is Spider-Man across the universe. We have Miles Morales as an Afro-Latino Spider-Man. And that's that's representation. There's other children's TV shows that um, star Black kids, uh, including something like Doc McStuffins. I know that I think that went off the air a little while ago, but you can still watch it. So I think when we I, I see this often happening where and this happens across the board, I think, not just with Black people, but with lots of demographics where they'll say, like, we don't have this kind of representation and then they're ignoring or maybe they just like don't realize that there is representation and I think that to pretend that that doesn't exist is in itself a problem um, because then you're just kind of erasing history and like erasing the fact that these things do exist and have always existed. It's just sometimes you have to look a little bit harder to find them. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I I, I still find myself in, in situations or conversations where I'm like, oh, I didn't know that happened so many years ago. And, you know, someone started to pave the way and now we're just kind of starting to to dig into that history and we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier but I mentioned that Wannabe is such a, a thoughtful and enjoyable read I love your voice in it I mean this conversation reflects that I hope <laughs> a little bit but you know Aisha what do you hope readers take away from from Wannabe? I hope that um 
people realize that pop culture is very important. I think there's a, a way in which pop culture is often sort of cast aside, seen as um, frivolous or, you know, counter-programming from the real, quote unquote, the real things that are going on in the world. And while I'm not going to sit here and pretend that like it's as immediate and urgent as, you know, whatever is happening with, you know, student loan debt or trans rights and like that's not, you know, it's not quite on that same level. But I also think you can't ever separate these things because they're always working in tandem together. It's affecting us in ways that we might not always see um, and that affect the way we see each other and how we also see other people. Um, and I think that, you know, pop culture is very important and it's often colliding with politics. If it wasn't, then, you know, we wouldn't have uh, certain politicians trying to ban books or or ban drag shows. Um, it's it's always pop culture is always something that is working on us in so many ways, both political and personal. And I hope that this is uh, the kind of book that will help people think about that a bit more and and really engage with it on a serious level in ways they perhaps have not done in the past. And do you think with the pervasiveness of pop culture, is it, is it a good way for us to learn about our own history or even learn about culture beyond the, beyond the pop? I mean, does that make sense? Like, is this a way for people? Yeah. yeah. yeah does, it's not just for us in terms of American pop culture, but I think a lot of our international friends learn about America from the pop culture that you're just talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly partially why I've I've made this a part of my career was, you know, when I was in high school and, and, and in college, I became a lover of movies, especially old movies. And I used those movies as tools for me to learn more about the times in which they were made. And so I was very nerdy about it. I would read books. I'd, I'd read biographies. I'd, I'd read history books and books that include incorporated both film and TV into them. Um, and I think that it's such a great way. I think it's a great launching pad for discovering uh, th things about the past and also things about other cultures that you might not know about. Um, I think the part one crucial component of that is not just watching or consuming those things, but also then reading about them afterwards and reading a variety of perspectives about them afterwards. Um, and I realize not everyone is going to do that. Uh, but I do think for me, at least, that's been part of how I've learned so much about other cultures and about other times and, and generations is in part through uh, the art that I've consumed because that art does reflect the times and the people who, who are making them. Well, what you just described are just all the things I do on my off time. So <laughs> just all the nerdy <laughs> things. Do I read about everything that I just consumed? Yes. So I think you're in good company here. <laughs> I want to uh, switch gears a little bit. Well, speaking of all things nerdy, I think we've made it pretty clear that uh, we're all about the nerd chic over here. So we do have to ask, you know, what are some of your upcoming summer reads or listens or, or watches that you have planned? Uh, I mean, I'm excited I'm actually kind of excited for some movies this this summer. Um, I'm Ooh, looking tell. forward to yeah, I'm looking forward to Barbie. Weirdly enough, mm -hmm. you know, I in the book I talk a lot about my fatigue with franchises and you know familiar intellectual property, and Barbie is definitely that. Uh, it's like capitalism. She represents capitalism at its finest, and by finest, I'm saying that sarcastically to some <laughs> extent. But uh, I do think that Greta Gerwig, she's one of my favorite 
filmmakers right now and every movie she's made so far has surprised me and uh and I think that her being behind the wheel of this alongside her partner and screen co-screenwriter Noah Baumbach I think that they're going to bring something really fresh and interesting to this so I'm excited for for that uh for Barbie and you know I'm also <laughs> I'm also just uh looking forward to seeing you know what this summer brings in terms of uh various uh trends in in movie going and and whether or not smaller movies uh, a movie like theater camp which i saw at uh sundance i have a theater background and it's a very fun sort of uh christopher guest like uh parody of of theater summer theater camps uh, starring ben platt and molly gordon and it's really really fun and super nerdy uh, speaking of nerddom uh if you are a theater person i think it's very niche you will like it um so look out for theater camp too well we know what we're going to be doing very quickly after this and, <laughs> and you know we're we i think we've been talking about so much of of how interesting this space we're in right now and i think another thing that's been sort of on the forefront of a lot of our minds is the ongoing writer strike that's been going on since early may you know, what are what are your thoughts about that what's your response to to the writer strike I just think it's part of a larger wave. And again, this kind of goes back to how I how I talked about politics and art really being in tandem and 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 one as one. Because this is, you know, these are artists, these are people who are just looking to be able to make a living wage off of uh off of their work and their their profession. And we're seeing this trend of people unionizing across every you know every media form every format every uh, industry in ways that we weren't seeing a few years ago and so it seems very interesting to see how uh they've really kind of galvanized uh the the industry and hopefully changes will come sooner rather than later um and i definitely you know i support the writers who you know write the words that we all quote back to years later, um, being able to support themselves, just like I think everyone should be able to support themselves. Um, and I think it's, I think the the writer strike is, it's uh, people are on the line and I think it's a good thing and, and good for the industry at large. I know I have to thank all the writers and artists out there for basically half of my vocabulary. So <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and we've got about a minute left, but I, I must ask, you know, what's next for you? I know you have a very busy schedule, um, but what's what's coming up? What are you excited for? Uh, you know, I'm still I'm still on NPR at Pop Culture Happy Hour, so I'm looking forward to that. And just you know, I, I've I've written a book, so now I just kind of want to enjoy it while I can. <laughs> you also then, have some uh, tour dates, right? Yeah, yeah. I I will be. I so this weekend I will be in uh, Marin and Corta Corta Madera at the Book Pass. Uh, I will be in New York at the Strand next week on the 22nd and in L.A. on the 24th and St. Louis on the 26th. Thank so you so much. I've got a, a lot of things planned. You've been yeah. listening to Ayesha Harris, co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thank you so much for joining us today.